You are listening to the audio from Grace Bible Church. This audio message is a recording from our Sunday morning worship service. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning, Grace. Man, it's great to see everybody this morning. I want to encourage you guys to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. And if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, it is page 814 in your pew Bible, 814. So this week, actually the next three weeks, it's kind of nice. So like we just wrapped up our study in the book of Isaiah last week, and um, we have Palm Sunday next week, so that's going to be a special service. Of course, we have Easter Sunday, so we're not really starting our new sermon series on 1 Corinthians until the week after Easter. And so this was kind of a free week. And so I started praying, like, Lord, like, what do you want me to, to speak on? And because uh, if it's a free week, I want to speak on something that I'm passionate about and excited about. Not that I'm not excited about anything in God's word, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Like certain things, if you have a free week, what are you going to preach on? And God uh, led me to this passage, and, and I pray that, that what I have to say uh, this morning through God's word is a blessing to your soul and, and convicting and challenging. And that we'd all leave here, as Dave prayed earlier, closer to Jesus uh, than when we arrived. So how the church can change the world. You know, in the mid-90s, English guitarist and singer and songwriter Eric Clapton released a song called Change the World. And it finds Eric Clapton wishing that he had some sort of supernatural power uh, to make a difference in the world that would prove his undying love and devotion to some unnamed woman. And so taking at face value, the song itself is just a love song. However, generally speaking, the song has been viewed as an anthem about the power of love and its ability to change the world for the better. Church, we all long to see a change in our world, don't we? Don't we? All right, I'm just making sure we're on the same page here, because I, I figured that would be a resounding yes. We all long to see a world that turns away from sin and turns toward God. We all long to see uh, another great spiritual awakening in our midst, and where countless souls come to faith in Jesus, yes? Well, the good news is that unlike the wishful thinking of Eric Clapton, Having the supernatural power to make a difference in our world isn't wishful thinking for those who know Jesus. It's a God-given reality. You see, 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power, God's divine power through the Holy Spirit has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You see, through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, God has given all believers the ability to live for Jesus and love people like Jesus, which in turn makes a difference in the world around us. Radical difference. And if you don't believe me, just look at the ragtag group of disciples in the book of Acts for a moment. On paper, they were the least qualified people on planet Earth to do anything meaningful for the Lord. They certainly weren't the type of people that you think would be capable of actually changing the world. They held no positions of authority, prestige, or influence. However, once they received the Holy Spirit and submitted to his work in their lives, God empowered them to boldly preach the gospel, birth his church, and build his kingdom. And as a result, God used them to literally, I mean, they turned the world upside down. So much so that 2,000 years later, our church is here because of them. We're still feeling the effects of their ministry 2,000 years later. So church, let's not forget that the very same God who brought about the very first spiritual awakening in the book of Acts still sits on the throne today. 
And that same God is capable of doing it again. In fact, not only is he fully capable of doing it again, he's fully capable of doing it again in even greater measure than he did back then. Amen? However, if the church desires to see a true change in the world, then it must begin with a true change in the church. And when I say change, I'm not saying that the church should change its doctrine or devotion or dedication to the Lord. On the contrary, our biblical convictions must be tightly guarded now more than ever before. But what I am saying is that a much-needed change needs to occur in our attitudes and in our actions toward one another and especially towards those that are lost. Acts 4.13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Friends, I can't help but wonder, I can't help but wonder if one of the reasons why we have not seen another great spiritual awakening in our country is because the church, by and large, has not looked like a people who've been with Jesus. Somewhere along the lines, we just quenched the Holy Spirit's work on our lives. Somewhere along the lines, we lost sight of our heavenly mission to build God's kingdom. Somewhere along the lines, the church just stopped looking like the church. Instead of concerning ourselves with winning souls, we've concerned ourselves with winning political arguments. Instead of being a lighthouse for the community, many churches have become a haunted house where outsiders fear to enter on account of being judged. Instead of preaching the good news, we've settled for Fox News and CNN. You know what I'm talking about, right? Real talk? You guys, are, you, guys you know, it, it hurts, but it's, is it real? You guys, you know what I'm saying? And instead of fervent prayer, and we're all guilty of this, myself included, we've embraced fighting and protests. Instead of being a church with open doors, many churches have closed their doors to those who are different while other churches have become revolving doors for Christians that find something to complain about in every church that they go to. Simply put, somewhere along the lines, we stop practicing what we preach. And the world has taken notice. They've taken notice. They don't want anything to do with the brand of Christianity that so many churches are selling because much of it is actually juxtaposed to what's in Scripture. And church, can you blame them? I don't blame them. And so again, if we desire a spiritual awakening in our world, and I know that you do, and I do, then there needs to be a spiritual awakening in our churches. We need to come back to spiritual life again. We need to return back to the basics and be what God created us to be, the hands and the feet of Jesus. St. Teresa of Avila said this. She said, Christ has no body on earth but yours. No feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion for the world is to look out. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. And yours are the hands with which he has to bless us now. Church, there's a lot of truth to her statement. And so in today's study, we're going to just revisit. We're going to revisit what it looks like to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I want to tell you something. <laughs> the Lord wrecked me this week as I was preparing for this sermon. So you're probably going to get wrecked too. I apologize in advance. 
But we're going we're gonna to look, we're going to revisit what it looks like to be the hands and feet of Jesus by observing the greatest example that heaven has to offer, Jesus Christ himself. And it's through our study that we're going to be reminded that if we want to change the world around us, then we got to get busy following Christ's example. And so with that, let's pray. Sound like a plan? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to preach your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for preaching your word to me this week. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to just give what you laid on my heart to your people. And God, is our, as is our regular and fervent prayer, we do pray that we would leave here closer to Jesus than when we arrived. I pray that I would get out of my own way, not be a stumbling block to anyone here today. And we just pray that your living and your active word through the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak to our hearts today. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so before we jump into today's text, let me just give you a little bit of brief context. So today's passage is a, actually a significant turning point in Jesus' ministry. You see, up to this point, the disciples were simply listeners or onlookers. They watched Jesus teach and preach and heal, but they never practiced it for themselves. In other words, they had the book smarts, but they had not yet developed the street smarts. They had classroom knowledge, but they didn't apply it to their day-to-day -day lives. You might say they spent some time in seminary, but they had not yet served as ministers. Well, in today's passage, it actually marks the first time when Jesus asked his disciples to take what they learned and put it into practice. And as we'll soon see, he did so for good reason. So let's, let's begin by reading the whole passage in Matthew 9. And then we'll break it down. It's verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Church, the story is told of a kindergartner, or kindergarten teacher, rather, who gave her class a show-and-tell assignment of bringing something in that identified their faith. And so the next day, the first child got in front of the class and said, My name is Tommy, I'm Jewish, and this is a Star of David. And then the second child got in front of the class and said, My name is Billy, I'm a Catholic, and this is a crucifix. The third child got in front of the class and said, my name is Zachariah, I'm a Baptist, and this is a casserole. <laughs> you know, I can't remember if I told that joke before, but the good thing about telling jokes is if they're a good joke, you still laugh at them. So anyway, as believers, there are certain identifying marks. Isn't it so true, Baptists are casserole people? But anyway, <laughs> so funny. Anyway, as, as believers... There are certain identifying marks that show and tell that we're followers of Christ, right? And I'm not talking about crosses, casseroles, bumper stickers, or t-shirts. I'm talking about distinct characteristics that reflect the heart and the hands and the feet of Jesus. Characteristics that, when actually lived out, can change the world around us. Well, found within today's passage are four of these characteristics. And so let's hop in and begin by looking at the first. Number one. We are to seek those who are lost. Seek those who are lost. Look at the first part of verse 35. And Jesus went 
throughout all the cities and villages. In the film Jesus Revolution, how many of you guys have seen Jesus Revolution, by the way? A good number of you. In the film Jesus Revolution, it tells a story of a revival that took place in the heart of a pastor named Chuck Smith in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, which resulted in a great spiritual awakening among the hippie movement. You see, Calvary Chapel had been a lifeless church, dwindling in attendance for years. And as the church grew smaller, the hippie movement was growing larger. At the time, Pastor Smith's heart was hardened toward these young people. He didn't understand their world and wanted nothing to do with them. It wasn't until his daughter brought home a hippie that Pastor Smith's heart radically changed. Once he opened up himself to understanding their world, his perspective completely changed. And instead of rejecting these young people, he dedicated the rest of his ministry, really, to reaching these young people. And as a result, this powerful movement of the Holy Spirit took place. And thousands upon thousands of young people placed their faith in Jesus all across our nation. It started in California and just worked its way all around. Church, if we want to position ourselves, we can't create like a spiritual movement of God. We can't tell the Holy Spirit when and where to work. But if we want to put ourselves in a position for a great spiritual awakening, then we need to follow Pastor Smith's example. We need to soften our hearts towards those we don't understand. We need to be willing to take some risks. We need to get outside of the comfort zone of the four walls of church and go to where the need is. And truth be told, it's not Pastor Smith who set this example. It was Jesus. It was Jesus. The words, Jesus went, in my opinion, are the most revealing words in this entire passage. Similar to today, the cities and the villages were the places where the lost did life together. Jesus didn't sit in a building and wait for the lost to come to him. He went to them, and we can learn from his example, church. Because I think, and we're all guilty of this, and I'm, I'm the first one to say that, that I am as well, but many churches today have this, if you build it, they will come mentality. They make the futile assumption that if the church building's open and the lights are on and the word gets out, you know, about a special event or church service, that those who are lost are simply just going to show up in droves. Now look, there may have been a time in our nation's history when that was true. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen from time to time, but what I am saying, that is the exception. That is not the rule. Those days are long gone, if they ever existed in the first place. I don't know, I wasn't alive in a time where they did exist. And so, church, if we desire to reach those who are far from God, if we want them to come to us, then we first need to go to them. We need to do the hard work of meeting them where they're at. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, that word go is better translated as you are going. The idea here is that we're commanded to make disciples wherever we go in the world, whether it be in our homes, at school, at work, across seas, or anywhere in between. The bottom line is that we need to go. We actually need to adopt a little mermaid mentality when it comes to evangelism. I want to be where the people are. You know what I'm saying? Hey, if it helps you remember, roll with it, right? Little mermaid mentality. She wanted to be where the people are. The church needs to want to be where the people are too. Because friends, the reality remains that most people, most believers, excuse me, don't have to go very far out of their way to rub elbows with the lost. 
Why? Because most believers work secular jobs. Many go to secular schools. They're around the lost every single day. Mission fields are literally handed to you on a silver platter. All they need to do is engage. Engage. But the problem is that most are not engaging. I recently came across a heartbreaking study that I believe reveals a key reason why we haven't seen another great spiritual awakening in our world. Are you ready for this? 82% of the unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend church if invited by somebody they know. Fair enough. That's a, that's a good stat. However, only 2% of church members invite a single unchurched person to church each year. You pick up on that? 2% of church members invite a single unchurched person to church each year. How in the world are we going to, how do we expect a movement of God to happen among the lost if the people of God only invite one per, 2% of the people of God only invite one person to church every single year? As my friends in the South say, that dog won't hunt. Chris Allison, where you at? That was for you. But you know what this study tells me? tells me that the church of today, by and large, has lost its burden for the lost. We all want to see a spiritual awakening. But our hearts reveal otherwise. And friends, that's a terrible place for the church to be. Because a church that's, that loses its burden for the lost is a church that's lost its way. On the Lord's Day in 1865, on Brighton Beach in England, Hudson Taylor became deeply convicted of this reality. And he said, unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security, while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony, and there the Lord conquered my unbelief, and I surrendered myself to God for his service. And following this fateful day, the China Inland Mission was born. And within a year, Hudson Taylor, his family, and other workers set sail to China to preach the gospel and plant churches. Convinced that the gospel would only take root if the missionaries were willing to actually identify with the culture of people they wanted to reach, Hudson Taylor said this. He said, let us in everything not sinful become like the Chinese, that by all means we may save some. And church, in the years following, an untold number of Chinese people came to faith in Jesus. You see, Hudson Taylor, I think, recognized two critical components for reaching the lost. First, he recognized that we need to go to them. We need to start that conversation with them. And second, he recognized that he needed to do everything he could to identify with them. In fact, this is the pattern that was given to us by the Apostle Paul. Look at 1 Corinthians 9. Paul said this, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I would bring to Christ those who are under the law. 
When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. For I do not ignore the law of God, I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weaknesses. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Church, needless to say, if we desire another great spiritual awakening in our midst, then we need to do the same. Without sinning, and that's the key, without sinning and within reason, we need to go where the lost are and we need to identify with the lost do. Now, I understand, Pastor Mike, bad company corrupts good morals. I understand that. And I also understand that, that there are some of you here that simply cannot go back to where you came from. You cannot hang out with the same people. There's certain, there's certain groups of people you just cannot be with because you know it's going to be a stumbling block to you. I understand that. We all have those people in our lives, so we need to use discernment. But what I am saying is we all have people that we can go to. We all have people that we can go to and identify with, find common ground with, without sinning. Love on them so that we could bring them to Jesus. That's how we build relationships, build rapport, and earn the right to invite them to church and share the good news of the gospel. Now, church, I know this is convicting stuff, but if you're with me, say preach on. Thank you. I appreciate the permission to do so. I was going to do so anyway, but it means something when it comes from you. This leads us to the second characteristic. We are to serve those who are lost. Seek them, serve them. Look at verse 35 again. It says, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. You know, I, I know I've told you this story probably several times throughout my years here, but when I was in college, I went to New York City with a group of friends. And as we walked the busy streets, we came across a family who was sitting on the side of the road, and they were playing music, and they were hoping to earn some extra money. Not sure what was going on in their lives. You see a lot of that in New York City, of course. And a friend of mine in our group, uh, she felt pity for this family. And, but instead of giving them money, she wrote like a Bible verse on a piece of paper and dropped it in the guitar case. And when the father of this family picked up that paper and read it, we overheard him shouting to us as we were walking away. He said, I don't need Bible verses. I need money to feed my family. And church, that event occurred about 20 years ago, but I can remember it like it was yesterday. Because we tried meeting this man's spiritual need, but we completely dismissed his spiritual or physical need. And as a result, he actually hardened his heart towards the gospel. Around the same time, I was working at Circuit City. You guys remember Circuit City? I'm the reason why it's closed. No, not really. <laughs> but during one of my shifts, one of my managers came up to me, and his face was as red as a stop sign. He was angry. He was angry with me. And in his hand, he had this stack of Bible tracks that he found laying all throughout the store. And... The tracks had this picture of like fire on the front of it and basically told customers that if they don't repent and turn to Jesus, they're going to burn in hell. And so my manager knew I was a Christian. He thought I was the one who did that. I wasn't. I wasn't. And I wouldn't have. 
You see, some random customer with no relationship with the store and without permission thought they were doing God's work by littering all over Circuit City. And as a result, my manager's heart was hardened towards the gospel. Hardened towards the gospel. Like, I can't repeat what he told me. Or just ask any waiter or waitress about the Sunday afternoon crowd. Dave could probably relate to this with some of his coworkers up at the Olive Garden. See, churchgoers have built a bad reputation for tipping poorly and leaving tracks on the table instead. You don't need money, you need this. And again, in doing so, instead of advancing the cause of Christ, you're actually hindering the cause of Christ. Because the hearts of these waiters and waitresses are now hardened towards the gospel. You see, someone once said, when it comes to evangelism, approach trumps content every time. Your approach trumps your content every time. You see, in all of these cases, the content was right, but the approach was wrong. Jesus gives a more balanced approach for reaching the lost. Notice that Jesus taught, preached, and healed in the synagogues. His example shows us that meeting people's spiritual needs and their physical needs, they go hand in hand. It's not either or, they go hand in hand. You see, Jesus performed miracles of physical healing to authenticate his message. And now, even though we don't have the power or authority to heal every disease and affliction like Jesus did, we do have the power to meet people's needs in other tangible ways. And when we put this power into practice, it authenticates our message. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 to 39, he said, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And listen, church, there is no shortage of ways to love our neighbors as ourselves. To show love for God and love for our neighbors. Some of those ways include, but are not limited to, being present for those who are afflicted. Praying with those who are hurting. Being an encouraging voice for those who need to be built up sacrificing your time and resources to meet someone else's needs, being hospitable, giving generously to those in need, being kind to those who are oppressed, defending the weak and fatherless, walking alongside someone who's dealing with grief, loss, or pain, and so much more. Friends, Jesus built his entire earthly ministry around meeting people's spiritual and physical needs. Spiritual's got to be, I understand that spiritual's got to be our first priority, but it doesn't have to be either or. He built his entire earthly ministry around serving people. In fact, it came right out of the mouth of Jesus himself. He said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but what? To serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, church, if we want to see change in the world around us, serving people like Jesus is a great place to start. John Wesley summed it up nicely. He said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, and all the places you can, and all the times you can, to all the people you can for as long as you can. It's pretty good, right? This leads us to the third characteristic. Sympathize for those who are lost. Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, church, over a decade ago, on an Easter Sunday morning, we celebrated our sunrise service up at Sherwood Park, outdoors at Sherwood Park. Now, some of you are going to remember, 
that this particular Sunday, I pulled a very cruel but revealing prank on everyone who attended. You see, I was tasked with giving the devotional message for that Sunday. And my idea is, is I wanted to demonstrate how the church can show compassion for the lost. And so I did something really bad. I planted someone in the crowd whose job was to obnoxiously play basketball right when I was trying to preach. Now, if you can picture it, there's like 100 people sitting six feet away from the basketball court. It's a quiet Sunday morning. Maybe we sang a couple of hymns. I'm up to preach. And all of a sudden, this dude, all dressed up in a hoodie and looking all whatever, just starts bouncing the basketball and shooting at the net that's closest to us. And so as part of the plan, it's all part of the plan, I, I started preaching my message, and I kind of stopped preaching my message, like right in the middle of it, and I told the audience, I'm like, guys, I, I got to talk with this guy. I'm sorry. And they're like, okay, you know, and they're getting all red-faced and ticked off with this guy and everything. And so I, I, uh, I actually invited this guy to come forward, like in front of everybody. And again, this is all pre-planned, and, and of course he did. And uh, in front of the entire crowd, we had a pre-planned conversation with a pre-packaged gospel presentation, which eventually led to a predetermined positive response by this player. And by the end of the conversation, everyone in the audience, they were clapping and cheering and smiling for this young man. But that's not how things started. After I revealed it was all a prank, there were many in the crowd who were ashamed. That's where I was bad. I made people feel bad on Easter Sunday. <laughs> I was bold back in the day. I should do that again one of these days just to mess with you guys. But anyway, they were ashamed over their initial response to this young man. Instead of having Christ-like compassion, they viewed him as an unwelcome distraction. Their thoughts and their words and their deeds toward him, they didn't align with their beliefs. I even had somebody come up to me afterward and say, shame on me. Where's my Christian love? What was I thinking? In church, if we're painfully honest... Many of us can relate. Instead of showing Christian love towards those who are lost, we've allowed our hearts to become hardened and embittered toward those who are lost. We view them as an unwelcome distraction in our world. And this, of course, is the exact opposite of how we should feel. The noun form of the verb compassion literally refers to the intestines or the bowels. The compassion that Jesus felt for the lost, it wasn't just figurative, it was physical. In other words, felt something deep inside. His heart was broken over their brokenness. Church, let's not forget something. At one point in our own lives, we too were once lost. We too lived in sin, rebelled against God, and followed the ways of the world. We too were once spiritually blind, driving down that highway to hell. And if it weren't for another compassionate believer seeing us, you and me, as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, we'd still be driving down that dreadful highway. If it weren't for another believer who was compassionate introducing us to Jesus, we'd be no different. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6.11, as such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All this to say, if we desire another great spiritual awakening in our midst, we need to pray that God would give us a renewed compassion and sympathy and love for the lost. Because that's how life-changing, Christ-exalting, genuine gospel work gets done. 
And make no mistake about it, our gospel work is cut out for us. This leads us to the last characteristic. Strive over those who are lost. Verse 37. Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. One of the most iconic movie lines of all time comes from the movie Jaws. After Chief Martin Brody first laid eyes on the great white shark that was terrifying beachgoers, he said to his colleagues, you're going to need a bigger boat. When the chief saw the great magnitude of what they were up against, it became abundantly clear that their small boat and small crew were no match for the big shark. Well, we see a similar sentiment in these closing verses. When Jesus saw this great harvest of lost souls, he told his disciples, we're going to need a much bigger boat of people if we're going to reach them all. There were way more souls to be won than people willing to win them. And so Jesus asked his disciples to pray. Verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Interestingly enough, Jesus didn't even ask his disciples to pray for the lost souls. He asked them to pray that the Lord would raise up more workers to reach the lost souls. Now that's not to suggest that we shouldn't pray for lost souls. In fact, the opposite is true. We should pray by name for those who don't know Jesus until they come to know Jesus. Never stop praying for lost souls. But remember the immediate context. Up to this point, the disciples only observed Jesus' ministry. Prayer. I love this. Prayer was the means that Jesus was going to use to get them involved in his ministry. It is such a brilliant strategy. Woodrow Kroll said, fervent prayers produce phenomenal results. Church, when we strive in prayer for those who are lost, when we earnestly and fervently pray for God to send workers to our family members and to our neighbors and our friends and our fellow employees, do you know what starts to happen? You know what happens? A phenomenal transformation takes place in our lives. All of a sudden, we become the workers that we're praying for. That's what Jesus intended for his followers then, and that's what he intends for his followers now. Because 2,000 years later, not much has changed. Actually, ironically, there's a lot more followers of Jesus now than there were then. But the truth still remains that the harvest of lost souls is still plentiful, and the laborers willing to go after them are still few. And so, friends, if we desire to see a change in our world, then we need to start by being the change in our world. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, now more than ever before, the church needs to recommit to following Christ's example. It will be very messy. And it certainly won't be easy. But when we start seeing more and more hearts turn to Jesus, it's all going to be worth it. R.A. Torrey had it right when he said, Unite with a church that has a real active interest in the salvation of the lost. Where young Christians are looked after and helped. Where ministers and people have a love for the poor and the outcast a church that regards its mission in the world to seek and save the lost. Amen? Now, if you're here this morning, and you're one of the lost, in other words, you're someone who's never placed your faith in Jesus before. Perhaps you're checking out church for the first time. Maybe you've been invited by a friend. Let me be the first to say that we Christians, we are not perfect. And we admit that freely. Well, at least we should. The whole basis of our faith really is that we're not perfect. 
We get it wrong probably more often than we get it right. We're a work in progress. But listen, we truly do mean well. More than anything else, we truly do desire to see a gospel message, see the, the same gospel message that changed our lives change your life as well. And the message is simple. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Which means eternal separation from God and hell. Yet God in his great love for you became a man in Jesus. And died on the cross taking the punishment for your sins upon himself. Three days later he rose from the dead. And in doing so, he provided the way to receive forgiveness for your sins, be saved and receive eternal life. I'm sure you've heard this next verse often, but maybe today it'll sink in because it's beautiful. For God so loved the world. God so loved you. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him, if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. Friend, if you want to be forgiven for your sins and be assured of your salvation, if you want to know that you're going to go to heaven when you die, then all you must do is admit that you're a sinner, repent of your sin, asking God to forgive you, and believe in the person and work of Jesus. At the moment of belief, the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you and secure your soul for eternity, and you'll be given the free gift of eternal life. And not only that, but at the moment of belief, you'll no longer be harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Because at the moment of belief, Jesus becomes the good shepherd for your life. And he promises to lead you beside still waters and restore your soul. And so if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, but you're ready to give your life to him today, you want to make him your good shepherd, you could do so right from the, the quietness of your seat. Simply pray to him. This is a decision you're making to him, not to me or anybody next to you, but just say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. I believe he died for my sin, and that you raised him to life, and I want to trust him as my savior and follow him as my Lord from this day forward. Guide my life and help me to do your will, and I pray this in Jesus' name. And friend, if you pray that prayer and you mean it, and let me encourage you, come forward after the service, grab an information packet, mark it on your Connect card, place it in the, in the basket on your way out. I just want to be sure that, that we get information into your hands that's going to help you grow in your new relationship with Jesus. Sound good? And so at this time, I'd like to call the, the praise team forward as we close with a song of response. And as they're coming forward, let me just pray for our church body that we might leave here with hearts hands and feet that are more aligned with Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for, God, just this reminder, this hard reminder that you gave me this week of keeping the main thing the main thing, the importance of never losing our heart for the lost. God, it's easy to grow comfortable and in, in, in complacent, really, God, in our faith. We are so incredibly thankful that you saved us out of uh, the prisons that we were all stuck in. And, and, our, and our first instinct is we don't want to go back to those prisons, Lord, but there are other prisoners still, still enslaved and, and, and in chains, God, that need to hear the good news of Jesus. Oh, Lord God, give us the grace, the mercy, the compassion of Jesus to, to get back out there and, and genuinely love those who are far from you. I don't know what else to ask for, God, but just a change in our hearts this morning. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Grace Bible Church. For more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit gracebiblepa.com.